Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing the Star Wars TV show Andor, which is nearing the end of its first season. Starring Diego Luna as the future rebel spy Cassian Andor, this cleverly plotted political thriller is the most mature Star Wars spin-off to date, featuring an ensemble cast of rebels, imperial agents, and regular people trying to survive under the Empire's fascist rule. So this show's a banger. I'm completely obsessed. I've obviously been writing about this extensively at work, which is a huge relief because I have to cover a lot of shows that are not very good. That includes the previous Star Wars live action shows on Disney+. Plus. However, this show is a complete miracle. Um, we are going to have so much to talk about, like on a technical level, acting, direction, all the political writing. It's a lot. <laughs> so due to my current extensive COVID situation, I have not really been watching anything. Um, I get headaches most of the time when I look at screens for too long. So this is currently the only television show that I'm watching. But what I've been thinking about a lot watching it was a text exchange that we had I don't know, four or five months ago, I guess they must have released a trailer or some stills or something for this show. And you were like, I'm a fool because I'm really excited for Andor. And obviously it's going to be bad because all of the Star Wars TV shows are bad. And I was said, you're like Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football. Obviously there's <laughs> no way this show is going to be good. I absolutely did not believe there was 1% chance this would be anything other than garbage. Even though I like admire many of the people involved, Given the Marvel and Star Wars TV shows to date, all of which basically turned into disasters of one form or another, I did not believe the corporation was willing to let anyone actually do anything interesting. And my genuine shock that they were just like, do whatever you want, man, to Tony Gilroy, who's the showrunner of this. I still kind of can't process what's happened, which is a lot of the kind of fun of the show is just being like, what the fuck? (laughs) I mean, obviously they do not share any particulars of how these shows are made. Like, we don't really know much about how the sausage is made here. But there is an interesting profile article in The Hollywood Reporter where, I mean, Tony Gilroy's done extensive interviews about this and it's not like he's kind of fully embedded in the Disney PR machine or anything. But the way he was kind of talking about the production process was like, obviously he wrote Rogue One or co-wrote it but he didn't have any particular plans to go back to Star Wars and there was this long period where Disney and the producer of the whole franchise Kathleen Kennedy was kind of looking to find ways to make a Cassian Andor prequel series and they'd had like multiple pilots written by different people and none of them were really working out and they kind of brought Tony Gilroy back for just meetings because it's one of these situations where there's like a million people having various meetings that like go nowhere and he wrote what he described as a manifesto in what he also describes as a manic state (laughs) where he was basically describing all the stuff that he thinks is like do's and don'ts for making this TV show and then it was in development hell for even longer and then finally they like asked him back to be the showrunner and he came on and then crafted this incredibly impressive work where he clearly has this very specific vision and there's really impressive writing from the entire writing staff. But when I was kind of thinking about this interview compared to the way the other shows were made, I gleaned some insight from this because right now the other Star Wars TV shows all basically come from the same people, which is Dave Filoni, who previously did the kind of animated shows and now does live action stuff like The Mandalorian, and John Favreau, who is a big Disney guy, like he did, you know, Iron Man and stuff, but like now he does loads of Disney stuff. So between them, they have done The Mandalorian and Boba Fett, and they kind of took over 
partially Obi-Wan Kenobi, which like had a different showrunner and then had to be retooled. So like it's been a kind of messy situation. They're also working on two other spin-offs. And to me, I'm like, okay, they've got these two guys who are basically hacks, but are extremely reliable because they're inside the machine. And they're kind of like the equivalent of the Russo brothers for Marvel. They're making stuff which is clearly commercially viable and loads of people watch, but like by any stretch of the critical imagination is absolutely not good. (laughs) But then it's really hard for the machine to find someone who can work within that framework and actually create something good and doesn't explode in a pile of meetings, which is clearly what has happened to like a whole bunch of other fucking spinoffs that we've not heard of. And, you know, somehow this happened. There are a couple of interesting things going on just in terms of what we can interpret or glean from what exists on the screen. I would absolutely love to read an oral history in 10 years about what the fuck actually went on here. But as you say, there's a lot that they're not going to say publicly, certainly not right now and probably ever. Some of it is that to me, this feels like almost incidentally Star Wars. Obviously it is a Star Wars show and all the costumes and stuff are sort of correct for Star Wars. And there are various moments that tie into other parts of the larger Star Wars media conglomerate. But tonally, it's completely different from all of the movies. And it doesn't really feel that interested in like the idea of Star Wars. And you have some stuff in this lovely document that you made about how Tony Gilroy just like isn't that into Star Wars. Yeah, I I mean, he's not like a fan. And he was actively discouraging nostalgia and kind of fanishness from his creative team like he even talks about how you'll bring actors in who are really good and then they'll start doing what they subconsciously think is star wars acting instead of real acting so there was this process of him peeling away people's assumptions and forcing them to just treat this like a normal drama which i find very understandable and it's interesting that he is specifically singling that out because he's not precious about nostalgia and all of the other tv projects are aggressively nostalgia driven you know they're either stuff where it's like literally doing stuff about a character people already love like obi-wan or the mandalorian which is technically a new character but is extremely formulaic and all the kind of production stuff is like oh we're back on tatooine again and there is no there's no real ideas whereas with this it's like what if we made a mid-20th century cold war thriller but it's on the planet canary you know (laughs) well even the the more recent film trilogy, which I think is of varying quality, even when that trilogy is working really well, it's still operating in that zone of nostalgia and also, like, Star Wars bigness, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Like, that can be really fun to go to a movie, Star Wars or not, that's just, like, a big genre, like, sci-fi slash fantasy kind of bonanza. But this show is just completely not that at all, which is really interesting. And part of what makes it appealing to me because it's just completely like it's so about our world and we'll talk more about the politics of it as we go on but it feels just like so explicitly about us and not about like an alternate universe right but there's also the feeling I think of it coming from one person's mind which obviously is not explicitly the case as you said this had a writer's room Tony Gilroy's brother Dan Gilroy who made Nightcrawler is one of the writers and obviously was involved and then there are other people and there are multiple directors working on it like like all television this is a collaborative enterprise but the fact that it feels so distinctly specific I think speaks to the 
degree to which he was like, we're doing this thing that I want to do and we're going to do it this way. And obviously other people contributed to that, but the sense of like a strong vision from an individual creative person, I think helps a lot making a good show much of the time. And then in a lot of these other shows, especially the Marvel ones, like there's no showrunner for those shows, right? And instead it's such a product of like just corporate Yeah, I mean, it's nonsense. a lot closer to what people used to see in the old extended universe of books for Star Wars where, you know, you'd have writers who would just be allowed to do whatever they want. And sometimes it was stuff that was bonkers. And other times it was like, oh, this is really interesting sci-fi. And they were kind of, I mean, that's obviously still happening now, but there's a bit more Disney oversight and you have things which are exploring different tones of the universe. And kind of one of the key things about Andor part of the reason why it's so kind of grounded is that it just isn't interested in any of the fantasy elements. It's taking these characters who are all very normal and kind of miserable and have very realistic concerns, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of what was interesting to me about watching this, especially the first few episodes, I mean, then I just kind of got into the story. But when I was watching the first few episodes, I was thinking about it so much as a Tony Gilroy project because he has a really interesting resume. He's made a lot of movies that haven't really done very well, especially in the past 10 years or so, which I imagine is how he wound up kind of getting into the Star Wars orbit in the first place. But he's the person who wrote the Bourne movies originally, which for people of our age were definitely like a formative, like early action franchise. And most importantly to me he wrote and directed michael clayton which is from 2007 got nominated for a ton of oscars and i think it's just like a spectacular film featuring george clooney's best performance and so many of the ideas he's exploring in that movie are also explored in this and even if you look at the Bourne movies obviously those are on a much more pop level but like throughout these projects you see ideas about like conspiracy and corruption of power and just like middlemen who are kind of like fighting with each other to try to figure out like who's in charge. I mean, if you think of the board movies, the when they like cut away from Matt Damon to like the room where all of the CIA people are sort of like, there's so much similarity between those scenes and the sort of empire scenes in this show. Not so much that watching this, you would be like, well, obviously the person who wrote this show is the creator of Jason Bourne. That was a novelist, but you know what I mean. But if you have in your head that, like, this guy was writing these, there's a kind of auteurist thing where, like, you can see what he's interested in and how he's expressing that. And that is so different from, like, any major Hollywood franchise thing going on right now, except, I would say, Black Panther. Obviously, we haven't seen the second one yet as of this recording, but it's just feels so refreshing to be like, oh my god, there's an adult making this and he has thoughts. <laughs> yeah. For listeners who have not really watched the show yet, we will go into a bit now, I think, just give like a bit more of a in-depth explanation. I have noticed that I think they have aged up Cassian 10 years canonically, which I was curious about because in Rogue One, he was allegedly 26, which means he would be 20 here. I think he's actually now 30. And I was like, okay, well, someone someone switched the dates up, which I appreciate because uh, Diego Luna is over 40. He looks wonderful, <laughs> of course. But one of the, like, the most exciting things about just starting this show is that it's extremely unpredictable. You know, obviously there's stuff which is very clearly foreshadowed, but we're kind of used to watching 
Star Wars shows and Star Wars media in a very kind of formulaic and tropey way. You know, you expect things to go a certain way. And right off the bat, I was personally like surprised that Cassian isn't even part of the Resistance yet. I, I sort of assumed that if it wasn't just like his origin story to join the Resistance, that would happen quite fast. But actually, it's an extremely slow process. The main theme of the show is the idea that it's like really difficult to make that decision to effectively abandon your life and become an outlaw. And he is struggling with that decision throughout like all nine episodes we've already seen. And there's other characters who have already come to that point, but you could see the sacrifices they've made. And you can also see why each of those rebels are uniquely fucked up because it takes place in this period between the prequels, but before the first like original trilogy movie where there isn't really a solid rebellion yet. You know, there's all these splinter cells of different political extremists and people who on an individual level decide to rebel just out of desperation. And there's sort of spy characters and stuff. There's this character played by Stellan Skarsgård who is called Luthen Rail, and he is this guy who kind of initially recruits Cassian for a mission, but like he's not giving Cassian any information. And I think it's just thinking really intelligently about the way this kind of project would be structured. You know, the way we see it in the original trilogy is you have Luke Skywalker arriving as this action hero, you know, blockbuster protagonist, fantasy protagonist showing up to this thing which already exists, which is completely fine because that is the tone of the story. You know, you don't want to have like a fuck ton of political world building there because it's a fun, fast paced Hollywood blockbuster. But you can kind of see the roots of how it might have kind of been generated by the culture at large because you see the fascist underpinnings of the empire and stuff. And in this show, it really drills down into the way that this kind of political extremism happens in the real world. You know, it was making me think a lot about like far more serious films I've seen about like guerrilla warfare. There's this amazing movie called The Battle for Algiers, which is a docudrama, which is about this urban guerrilla war that took place in Algiers in the mid-20th century. It kind of goes through the system of like how when you're in an occupied territory and you want to fight back, there's no way to do it in a sort of public way. It has to be all like individual private cells of people. And this show is depicting that exact same kind of technique in a way that just feels extremely dark for a mainstream franchise. Like one of the most common pieces of commentary about this show is that it's wild that Disney allowed it to happen, particularly in just like its depiction of capitalism and policing are extremely cynical and kind of rooted in modern leftist politics in a way that is very startling for like any American TV drama. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment in one of those episodes where one of the rebels is describing how corrupt it is that technology is built to decay and only last a certain number of years. Planned obsolescence. Like, yeah. I was like, wow. You associate that more with Apple rather than Disney, but still for it to appear in a Disney program is startling to say the least. I mean, I think everything about the show is fantastic. We'll definitely talk about the cast in a minute because I think it's like a triumph of casting. The direction is fantastic. But the most astonishing accomplishment to me is the writing. I just think it is a clinic in screenwriting. Like, you could study it in a class. And I think a lot of what works about it is that there's a sort of combination of really classical screenwriting tropes and then more specific stuff that feels a little bit stranger. So Cassian in this is basically just going through a really traditional hero's journey. In the hero's journey, which is like a 12-step process that 
you can map onto lots of sort of traditional, I don't know, heroic narratives. The hero will get like a call to adventure at the beginning. And then instead of just immediately being like, yeah, sounds great. I'm going to go on this like <laughs> quest. There usually is like a hesitance at the beginning where they're like, oh, I don't want to leave my like comfortable home, whether that's a physical home or just like a worldview, right? And that's exactly what we see happen on this show is that he's sort of like, well, I don't want to be a rebel because that seems really hard and complicated. And what if I just pretended like nothing was really wrong, even though obviously the entire society that these people live in is fucked up. Diego Luna is wonderful in the show, but it's a in a way a really non-egotistical role because he kind of is just like the straight man at the center of the narrative. He's reacting to a lot of stuff. His characterization is like good. It all makes sense, but it's not as exciting or just like wonky as some of the side characters. And so there's this strong central component to the narrative, which is really easy to understand. Like we've seen so many stories about hero characters like this, that it's intuitive. But then all of the side characters are just like, whoa <laughs> they're really, highly really weird and highly specific yeah. i mean i am obsessed with every character in this show but just cassian is killing me man he's so good <laughs> it is really like a gift to him as an actor like it's a gift to every single actor which as we said we will go into in a minute because the performances in this are so wild but Although he does have this really traditional hero's journey kind of structure and the narrative is revolving around him as with a traditional protagonist, I have noticed that like a lot of people simply don't understand him as a character in the viewership, not because of any faults of the show, but because they've just been like trained to watch stuff that's so simple that they can't comprehend a character where you know, his decisions aren't being explicitly explained to the audience. But it is really interesting that like he is such a reactive protagonist you know he spends a lot of the show either experiencing like extreme emotional distress or he's observing things and the show does such an interesting job of kind of slowly building up all the skills that we know he'll need to become a rebel spy without really doing that in the foreground you know because even in Rogue One like he is the second build character in Rogue One but they don't have time to explain everyone's backstory and their motives and stuff. You know, you just know that he's this person who is simultaneously quite cynical and dark while also being very invested in the rebellion, you know? And in this, when we initially meet him, we see that he's he's living on this planet, Ferex, which is this sort of industrial city where he lives with his elderly mother and he has various like acquaintances but he's clearly at the end of his tether with most of them. Like he's in debt to loads of people and he's got these quite shady business dealings and he's clearly a criminal, but not like a dangerous criminal. You know, he's got various sort of petty thefts and stuff. But the impetus for the main plot is that when he is off on another planet looking for his long lost sister, he kills two guards who work for the Preox Merlana Authority, which is this big corporate thing, which is basically an offshoot of the Empire, but they're a private organism. Like one of the things the show does really interestingly is kind of tying in capitalism to the Empire central structure. But like just from that beginning, you see that he has all these survival skills, but he is also one inch away from being in a really desperate situation. And as he is pushed into all these other dangerous situations, you see the ways in which he can like quietly observe people and 
see things that most people just can't notice and how he understands people and it's a type of social skills which are like very difficult to pinpoint you usually see that in a novel because it's quite hard to illustrate in film and tv except if you're making like a really classy real movie you know because you need to be able to demonstrate that like a this person is really smart without reeling off a bunch of smarty pants dialogue which is the number one way that tv shows illustrate someone is smart is just by making them a blabbermouth but it's like no he's quiet he's self-contained and he like really understands the world around him but also kind of wants to be in denial about it and it's just like there's so much going on there that i find fascinating and diego luna is such a moving and interesting performer to me I mean, great face. Yeah, he's got a great face. <laughs> and the the show gives him time to just like linger on his face and just act, you know, which is a blessing. <laughs> yeah, very funny to consider this versus Pedro Pascal being like, I will <laughs> yes. do three hours of voiceover with the Mandalorian. I mean, look, if I could make that money doing as little work as he's doing on that show, I, I would take that job. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of what works about that character is the denial you're talking about. I don't think it's even that he's like, I mean, no one chooses to be in denial, obviously. I think he, he really is in denial about stuff. And I think you see that with various characters in the show in different ways, that they just kind of behave stupidly in certain context because it's much easier to do that than to face the reality of what's actually happening even if they can be really smart and practical minded in other ways there are scenes with mon mothra especially in the last episode where she just kind of doesn't get what's happening because to get it is like way too hard yeah i mean the writers really understand that pretty much everyone is self-destructive or blinkered in one way or another. And as you were saying about like the writing just being really impressive, the dialogue writing for some of these characters is absolutely off the hook. Like in those first three episodes, the kind of main conflict is between Cassian and these police who are looking for him, like these corporate police from the Primor Authority. And the lead guy who is one of the main antagonists for the show is this guy named Cyril Karn, who is this like... <laughs> young slime ball cop. He's played by an actor named Kyle Soller, who I'm not really familiar with. And his introductory scene is just like absolutely perfecto scene setting because you have this young, very like spiffily dressed cop. And he is at your meeting with your classic older cop boss, who's just done with his job. He's like, look, just sweep these murders under the rug. I've got to give my murder reports to the Empire and I don't want the crime stats to go off. You know, he's corrupt, but like not in an overblown way. He's just like, look, this is the way it works. Stop fucking wasting my time. We're not, you know, super spies here. We're just mall cops and it doesn't matter if these two guys die. Whereas Cyril Karn is like completely up to his eyeballs in imperial propaganda and is like, no, it's my duty to solve these crimes and it's unbelievable that you're not keeping the streets clean because it's the Empire's job to make the trains run on time. And it's like, most real fascists don't actually think that because it's like, you're just there because you're like a bigot or you're greedy or you want to like game the system, you know? And he's like, no, the system's amazing. I trust it. And he is also like this deeply embarrassing and cringeworthy figure. And just all the like dialogue between those two very different kinds of shitty cop, it reminded me so strongly of Terry Pratchett because like it feels very British, even though a lot of the characters are, you know, space American or whatever. And like, the observation of the way that different people 
act within the police force is just so funny because once you've introduced these two guys, like the one who's obsessed with finding Cassie Nandor and the one who's like, it doesn't fucking matter. They then introduce a third cop who's the working class sergeant figure to the officer figure represented by Cyril Karn. And he is clearly just there because he wants to fucking bash some heads in. You know, he's just this like bloodthirsty asshole who also was past his prime. And so you have all these different angles of incompetence and stupidity and cruelty. And that is building on the first two cops that were initially murdered by Cassian because they just racially profile him at a brothel and are like, oh, you're not from around here and like try to shake him down for some money. And they end up getting killed basically by accident because they like fucked up their shakedown. And it kind of spirals off into this more extensive showdown where they follow him to his home planet and like completely fuck up this entire city where the locals are partially prepared for outsiders to come and invade and you see the social contrast between these people who are just trying to live their lives and have community methods in place to withstand outsiders trying to like fuck them up and then these police who are just running in like a bull in a china shop and don't understand how anything works yeah i mean the basic idea that the show is interrogating though there are many substratas of this it's got a lot on its mind is power And that is the ultimate inquiry of, I think, most of Gilroy's work. It's definitely what Michael Clayton is about. And specifically, this and Michael Clayton both are about these kind of corrupt power structures and the people who operate within them. And then also, like Michael Clayton, the character of Michael Clayton, played by George Clooney, is basically like a fixer for a big corporate law firm. And then he kind of discovers that there's this client of theirs that's doing seriously corrupt stuff. So it's not as though Michael Clayton is like a heroic figure. I mean, he is kind of a heroic figure within the context of the movie, but it's not like he's a moral crusader. Like he's done a lot of bad shit. And the sort of murky middle ground where all of that kind of person comes together and exists, I think is a lot of what Gilroy is interested in. And I think so much of what works in terms of the writing of that stuff in this show, and specifically the law enforcement type people working for the Empire, who are obviously like a level above the people you were just describing, who are these sort of like private law enforcement type people who really are pretty pathetic and like have power, but not in a prestigious way. He just is really good, he and the other writers, I should say, are really good at making us understand what is driving them psychologically in a way that makes them feel human without being like, oh, but we're going to sympathize with them necessarily. So the main character who we see the most in terms of that empire side is named Dedra Miro. She is played by the sensational Irish theatre actress Denise Guff whom people may have seen through the National Theatre Live broadcast of Angels in America. She played Harper in that. And I saw her on stage in that role. And she was just like so warm and kooky. I mean, people who know that play will know that role. It's like a wonderful, wonderful role. She won an Olivier Award for it. And um, she is like a cold-hearted bitch in the show. And it's just like, <laughs> what an actor. But there's this interesting dynamic within this group of... I don't know, officers, law enforcers, whatever, because she's the only woman. There's clearly a gender dynamic. She's never presented as like warm and fuzzy exactly, but she clearly is smarter 
than basically everybody else. And I think the show is really smart about demonstrating some of the appeals of fascism through that character because she kind of is just like, I just want to be competent and do my job and no one will let me. And I think as like viewers of media, there's something really pleasurable about watching someone figure stuff out. Well, it out, also right? fits into the framework of cop shows, right? Because yeah, right at the beginning of the show, yeah. I wrote an article about all the police and stuff. I will link to all the fucking stuff in the show notes. There's a lot of it. But um, <laughs> we're saying that like Sarah Karn in another type of TV show would be the loose cannon protagonist. Because it's like, he's fighting against corruption and wants to fight a criminal when no one else does. And it's like, of course he's terrible. And with this, Deidre Miro is like another type of protagonist there where in her particular field of work, like she is quite high up in the ISB, which is like the intelligence service of the empire. And that is a situation where there is an element of meritocracy. Most of the places in this show, obviously, it's like, no, there's no meritocracy because there's no meritocracy in life, you know. But um, she wants to prove herself and it's satisfying to see her prove herself, as you said. And she's got like the asshole guy at work who's being a jerk to her, something that many of us can understand and relate to. But also there are all of these secondary characters who are kind of the assistants who it's not like we're getting deep psychological profiles of them or anything, but they clearly just want to like do a good job at their work and like have the boss like them and or do a good job because it feels good to do a good job at the work that you do, right? But that's not ideological. Yeah, I mean, what they're doing is like finalizing the torture budget, you know? (laughs) Right, but you can totally understand what is driving all those people and they're not like cartoonishly evil but the show also makes it very clear that the organization of what it's doing is evil and as the show goes on Dedra becomes like more and more enmeshed in what she's doing and then winds up like torturing people and then it's like oh yes just to make it clear in case you didn't all know like this woman is really bad yeah and it's not like there's any internal conflict there She's just like, oh, I've got more leeway now. I mean, we're totally in spoiler territory now. After Cassian's little team have completed their mission on the planet Aldani in Scotland, that basically becomes the equivalent of 9-11 to the Empire because it gives the government all this leeway to suddenly just crack down on quote-unquote crime and just start fucking surveilling everyone and like arresting people willy-nilly. And it gives her the power to suddenly just start, you know, kidnapping and torturing people. She's just like, oh, finally, we can cut through the red tape. You know, it's not like she's steering about it, which to me is like a really great illustration of the show's attitude to kind of darkness and morality because the term moral ambiguity gets bandied around a lot just in general, but like in this kind of pop culture franchise specifically. And it's slightly different with something like Star Wars than something like a superhero franchise because it's already embedded in Star Wars that all of the heroes are allowed to kill people because it's a war. But like, it's a very cartoonish kind of death. That was why like the introductory scenes of Rogue One were so dramatic because Cassian's introductory scene sees him fully just kill someone in cold blood. And it's echoed again in this show where you really see these two guards as real people. They're incredibly unpleasant, but when one of them dies, the other one is very upset about it and is freaking out and is like clearly had feelings for this other guy, like it was his friend. And you get the impact of the death in a far more meaningful way. And then at the same time, the internal conflict that you see from the characters who are like on the good side It's not them thinking, oh no, can I bear to kill anyone? Mon Mothma might be thinking that. She's like, oh no, I don't know if I'm ready to let anyone die. But with the other characters, it's less to do with am I willing to shoot someone and it's more to do with far more complicated kind of 
internal debates about inertia and self-preservation. Because with a character like Cassian, he knows the Empire is bad. And I'm sure he believes from early childhood that the correct thing to do is to fight back and sabotage the Empire. Like he's talking about, you know, stealing stuff from the Empire and boasting about it when he first meets Stellan Skarsgård's character. But the thing that's holding him back is fear of retribution and fear of what's going to happen to his mother and his friends and so forth. So that's a more complicated kind of moral stance, you know? Well, that and, well, why should I do anything for anyone else? Yeah. So we haven't said yet, I mean, we're assuming that everyone has watched this, but this show is structurally kind of weird. I think you can really tell that the guy running it is a movie guy and not a television guy. Because the first six episodes are basically two feature films that have been like split up into episodes. And so the first one is basically like him getting recruited to be a mercenary on this mission. And then the second episode is the mission in Scotland, as you said, you know, Scotland in quotes. And then the third chunk of episodes we've seen up through episode nine at the time of this recording, he winds up in prison And my favorite chunk so far is the Scotland chunk, which I thought was just, like, incredible. And he meets all of these other people who are involved in the rebellion there because they've been planning out this attack on this base. And they're not all, like, super appealing or, like, inspiring people. They're all really normal. (laughs) And that, too, is, like, the corollary to the cop and ISB guys kind of being just like normal dudes is that obviously we're more sympathetic to the people who are working against the empire but they're not presented as being like morally pure or all being super selfless there's one character played by alex lother who is the genuinely just like true believer like he's writing a manifesto but Everyone else kind of has like a personal story for why they've gotten involved in this. They're kind of having fights with each other. You see one character, the woman who's leading the mission, whose name I can't think of at the moment. Yeah, the actress was also in Pride. Great movie. The whole time I've been like, where do I know her from? (laughs) A cornucopia of character actors. Oh my God, we, we need to talk more about them. But she clearly has trouble like actually kind of pulling the metaphorical trigger multiple times when they have to actually go ahead and do things which is very understandable from a human perspective but goes against the sort of romantic idea of like a revolutionary hero just being willing to just lay it all out and we're gonna die and it's totally fine and as you were saying like the fact that everyone kind of has a different reason for getting into this makes it feel way more real, but also explores the, like, political dimensions of how something like this happens in a way more nuanced and interesting Yeah. I mean, in the same way that Dead Romero's subplot is this workplace drama investigation, that trio of episodes on Aldani is very much kind of like this little dramedy about an activist group, because they are all these characters who the one thing that's bringing them together is this political cause which has completely alienated them from normal life because they've got to the point where they've been pushed to the brink and they're like, I have to risk my life to go and attack an imperial base. <laughs> it's very rare to get to that point. And you also see precisely why Luthen Rail is so keen to recruit Cassian because 
those scenes like they immediately demonstrate how he is like instinctively better and like better skilled at their job than they already are like he's able to see all these ways to break into the garrison and so forth that like they haven't even figured out even though they've been there for weeks and weeks preparing and that also kind of echoes Dedra Miro like they become these parallels to each other because they're these two people who are both like very intelligent and very competent in systems where like that's not always recognized yeah and I think the easier thing to do would be to have him be sort of convinced by that one episode but it's more psychologically believable that it takes longer and also I'm sure Disney was like can we have more episodes (laughs) they're already doing season two (laughs) which is like convenient and great for the people making it but it also feels more correct yeah for it to go on longer both for the character and we'll talk we can talk about the prison stuff in a second but the one other thing I wanted to add was that I just think the entire scope of the depiction of the political world which includes these places that have been colonized and exploited the fancy pants by moth apartment and her kind of schmoozing with these other rich political figures and kind of trying to do things underground there which I think is unbelievably well executed and then the prison stuff it is such a sophisticated depiction of how like empires and colonialism and imperialism works like I was thinking a lot about the British Raj in India watching this And when pop culture, like mainstream pop culture, engages with these ideas, it's often in a much more superficial way, because it's kind of easier to just be like, well, colonizers are bad, (laughs) you know? And like the politics of Star Wars historically is like famously incoherent and doesn't really make sense. (laughs) And like, it is kind of thrilling to watch someone be like, no, I'm gonna make it make sense. Like, we're gonna go through all of this and be like, what would it actually be like. I mean, it's the first thing that really examines the financial background of this whole situation, which is fine, once again, because, like, you don't want to see that in fucking The Last Jedi, you know, there's no room for that there. But with this, they can really dig into the way that, like, realistic financial pressures are altering everyone's lives, because, like, right off the bat, Cassian obviously is stealing stuff because he needs money, and he needs money to escape the dangers that the Empire is presenting to him and his mother. And he's in debt to loads of people and he thinks that selling this thing he's stolen is going to completely change his life. But of course it doesn't because like, you know, the whole plot kicks off. But you also, like all of the meetings you see within the ISB are budget meetings. So like Dedra is having to argue to get more budget to do her investigations. And then Mon Mothma, she's doing political fundraisers. And like Mon Mothma's character is so kind of revelatory because she's this figure who's been there throughout the franchise you know she's in the first Star Wars movie she's like the only female character who isn't Princess Leia and she's there as this sort of graceful middle-aged managerial presence over the Rebel Alliance you know she's this political headliner and then in the prequels they introduce her as this very minor character who's this young senator in the Republic Senate and she was played by the same actress in the prequels. Like, this is one of those situations where they've, like, dug up this actress who has been playing this role for five minutes in, like, a cartoon for years. Genevieve O'Reilly, who is also Irish, playing with a very posh English accent. But she's just tremendous in this. And they have basically invented her characterization from whole cloth. Because before now, it's just been, like, this lady who has really nice outfits. And here, they're like, (laughs) oh, well, what would the situation actually be, right? Yes, we know she's going to become a leader in the Rebel Alliance. 
but the Rebel Alliance is still a couple of years away from really existing in any realistic manner. So that means she is presumably still in a place of political power. So how would that person even be behaving? Because like, we know that she can't be speaking out in any real way because she would have just been assassinated or fired by the emperor. So the concept they've come up with, which is just so, so smart, is that she is being allowed to exist in her current form as this sort of weak figure who gives a sort of, oh, I'm like a centrist Democrat who's able to talk about cross-party lines sort of person who is voicing this opposition toward the empire, but has no real power anymore. And she also exists within the aristocracy of Coruscant, which we've not seen since the prequels. And the show makes it immediately clear that for everyone who is in this upper class, life has not changed at all since the prequels. The change of government makes no difference and they are all still living in luxury. And the way that Mon Mothma contacts the proto-rebellion is through Stellan Skarsgård's character, who is living a double life as this antique stealer on Coruscant. And that's also such a great little detail because it's like, first of all, it gives him access to like this wealthy surroundings, but also it's this microcosm of the empire's colonialism because we see in other scenes a more mature view of kind of colonialist themes we see in other parts of the franchise where Cassian's whole planet has been strip mined and he has had to abandon his culture, which explains why he has Diego Luna's Mexican accent, because as a child, he speaks a language which is not basic. It's not the English language that we hear in the franchise. And then after that planet is colonized, he is kidnapped slash adopted by a foreign mother played by the white actress Fiona Shaw. So like, there's this really ambivalent attitude toward his family life, because he genuinely loves his mother, who is like this really interesting and appealing character, but she's also someone who has taken him from his home culture and he's now completely stripped of that original identity and separated from his sister. And, you know, it's this really dark and sad kind of allegory for stuff that happens in real life to do with transracial adoption. And then you also see these scenes where like the empire is actively colonizing the culture on Aldani, where like you see them literally discussing how to discourage the locals from performing their religious practices while also exploiting this meteor shower that is like the central part of that religious practice. So you see the way that the empire is like enjoying stuff that's the fruits of other people's culture, but in a completely superficial way. And when we see these meetings between Mon Mothma and Luthen Rail in this antique store, it's happening initially through them being like, oh, I'd love to buy this antique. And it's something which has literally been like looted from somewhere that the empire has colonized because most of the objects in that shop, this is where like the nerd lore comes in, but most of them are from non-human <laughs> races. So you see these things where it's like, oh, this is something that, you know, a Wookiee would have or whatever. And very few of them are like human stuff. So you just have the implicit anti-alien bias that you see within the empire, but is only ever really illustrated through casting choices. So there's like so much going on there with that theme of colonialism. And then you just have Mon Mothma and it's like, oh, this actually would be what her life is like because the only way she can survive is by participating in this. And she's not quite ready to like make the jump. And also we get this look into her personal life because we see that she's in this like shit marriage with this shit guy. (laughs) So it's like very, very ambivalent situation. And she's like not parenting her own daughter. (laughs) Well, so there are a couple instances where we kind of get more information about the personal life of one of the characters. This is probably the most screen time of any of them. And I think 
all of those details, along with the details of, for instance, the antique shop that you were just describing, is the kind of stuff that there probably wouldn't be time for in a movie. So that's the benefit of this being television. But also that, well, most screenwriters working in this sort of like franchise space wouldn't think to do in the first place and or the producers would just be like, no. And it adds so much just in terms of making these characters feel more like people but also making their motivations seem more legible, which ultimately gets to the political thesis of the show, which is what, of course, it's really about. And I think it would be easy to look at Mon Mothma, who is, of course, the only character who's living in this kind of luxury and obviously is very, like, materially comfortable and also hesitant about sort of going sort of farther than she has as yet with the resistance it would be easy to dismiss her but i think the writing is so sophisticated that without being like she's the real hero because that's not what this show like it's not how the show talks about any of the characters so many of them are just like well i'm kind of comfortable where i am now and i don't really want to move right like we see that with cassian we see that with some of the other rebels and that she's just like terrified all the time and is kind of just trying to keep it together and the fact that she's her husband is this like awful man who she can't trust to know anything about what she's doing would add just like so much stress. And then there's this like teenage daughter wandering around who she's just like, I have no time for you at all. You're like, oh my god. Ah. But the other example of that is that um Cyril Karn, the sort of like mall cop guy who keeps showing up throughout the show like once he gets fired from his job at the beginning for being too zealous yeah that's exactly the word he has to go back and like live with his mother who is played by the legendary british theater actor Catherine hunter and she is just like the most <laughs> the oh worst God. person ever <laughs> and so she is just nagging him degrading him it's really funny but if it were happening to you it would be true nightmare and so you see this guy just sitting at the breakfast table with his mother just being like get me the fuck out of here which also makes his psychological profile completely make sense and in some interview tony gilroy was saying that woman had to be in the show because you get all these people are sort of coming at this from a different place right he has like the push and the pull right the pull is like he genuinely is a zealot. So he is the person who really has a drive to go and basically act out. You know, all these other people are like, oh, I'm going to work within the system of the empire to improve my own life. Whereas he is like, I believe in this and I have to go and catch this guy. So I'm going to act really weird compared to all the other cops. But then the push is that he has nothing keeping him at home because like it's unbearable to be at home with his horrible mother. Well, also like, why do people become zealots? There are lots of reasons. And one of them is... Just like true nightmare parenting that leads to and like a desire for identity. Like ego death. Like his mother has been like pressuring him to have this great career, and in some ways, he obviously wants that for himself. But now that's no longer available within the framework of law enforcement. He's like, I am going to be the one true believer who brings back Cassian Andor, who's this incredibly important enemy to the Empire. Even though Cassian has like no idea who he is, so it's a completely hilarious one-sided situation. And even the Empire itself, it's like someone like Dejamir is like, yeah, she wants to arrest Cassian, but she wants to take down this whole network of rebels, which is irrelevant to Cyril because he's just like fixated on this one guy. 
which came to a head beautifully in the most recent episode before we recorded this podcast where Cyril like stalks Dedra to her workplace and gives her this wide-eyed speech about how meeting her opened his eyes to truth and justice and he's like I know there's beauty in the galaxy because you're out there fighting the good fight and she is just like what the fuck is wrong with you I will have you arrested and thrown in a cage (laughs) just completely repelled Well, and this also, it's like, okay, this guy has an unbelievably horrifically controlling mother, and then he meets this arch cop who's like, <laughs> I'm interrogating you, you little piece of shit, and he's like, I'm in love with you. I'm like, no, please go see a therapist. Like, this is not healthy. <laughs> I mean, I want to talk about the prison stuff. I feel like we need to just pause for a minute and celebrate the casting broadly on the show. We've highlighted several of the actors, all of whom are wonderful. But There um, are 200 speaking roles in season one. It's unbelievable. So I was looking up a bunch of people as I was watching. The number of people who are primarily theater actors who get big roles in this is notable. And I think that that is a sign that the people who were casting knew what they were doing. Because... I'm generally apt to feel more positively about theater people, but there are a few more genuinely famous people. Like obviously Diego Luna is the star and he's very famous, but then someone like Stellan Skarsgård isn't like a, you know, Angelina Jolie type movie star, but he's obviously very, very well known and recognizable. And then Andy Serkis shows up in the prison section and there are one or two other people, but almost everyone else is someone you've like maybe seen in something but isn't like a big And also a lot of them look really normal in a way that gels extremely well with the 1970s and 80s movies because people looked different on screen then than they do now. Basically, there was more ugly people in this. (laughs) Yeah, and even the Cassian's female friend from- Bix Colleen. This is great that you you have to write about all this and you're just like, (laughs) let me pull every single name out of my head. Like, she's gorgeous. But there's this scene where she's getting interrogated in the most recent episode and there was like a shot looking at her kind of from the side where she's like sweating and there were like zits on her forehead and she just kind of looks like shit. I mean, I'm honestly so happy for this actress because she is so kind of conventionally beautiful that she has had a lot of dull roles aimed at conventionally beautiful women. And like, I'm glad she's getting paid, but I'm also glad that she is finally getting, you know, a good dramatic role to chew on in the public eye, you know? (laughs) Well, and she's a great example. Like, I don't think she's the most interesting or exciting performance in the show. The character is not the most exciting, but she's really good in the part that she is I mean, you're emotionally invested in her basically. Totally. I'm not trying to like slight her in any way. It's just that like the cast of the show is so ludicrous. And every single person in the cast just feels like completely right for the part that they're playing. And the fact that most of them aren't that famous is like a testament to the fact that they were prioritizing actual talent over names. I mean, it's also just like the details of like, oh, Dedra has an assistant who seems like he's probably a gay Tory, you know? That is how the British <laughs> government works. <laughs> yep. Alex Lothar, whom I mentioned, who plays the, like, true believer, I think is an incredibly talented actor and just, like, perfect at playing the sort of most pure and lovable character on the show. Eban Mas Babrak was also in that section. He was in Girls and is currently on The Bear. And it's just, like the best man at playing total shitholes. Like, he's just such an awful... I'm sure he's lovely in real life, but, like, his metier as an actor is just, like, what if I played 
the worst dirtbag. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like, what if I'm a life? weird, casually <laughs> shirtless guy who's like having invasive conversations with you at the campsite? <laughs> On Girls, he played, I think he was like a struggling actor who was just like constantly histrionically just like melting down. And you were like, this would be the most annoying boyfriend of all time. And he's just risen from that, you know. And those are two actors who like, I know their names. I recognize them immediately. They're not like mega famous. They have done good work on television, but they are completely correct for both those parts. And I so appreciated every actor in this so far obviously we still have three episodes left and i did think it was interesting that the racial diversity is really never commented on like there are black actors kind of on both sides of the line in terms of like people working for the empire and then rebels but gender and sexuality is still definitely clearly a thing in this universe i mean there's definitely kind of subtextual stuff happening with cassian's backstory and ethnicity Yes, but pretty much every other actor, I haven't really noticed yeah. That's definitely an intentional choice, and I think it's probably yeah. the right choice. Oh yeah, I agree. I, it was just Mon Mothma, there's definitely stuff going on with her being a woman that she has to just be like, yes, I'm so agreeable all the time. And there's one lesbian couple, and one of them has to sort of like pretend to be straight at one point. <laughs> yeah, there's a very funny dinner party happening. <laughs> which is funny. But like, that stuff's not beaten over the head yeah. at all but it clearly is sort of subtextually a part of the show but i think all of it's handled really well um do you want to talk about prison yeah i mean the prison sequence is incredible that introduction to the prison is one of the many instances where there's just this perfect marriage of writing and direction and production design and everything because you have these characters like these normal guys who have been arrested on clearly trumped up charges including Cassian and sent off to this random prison of course you know it's going to be terrible because it's an imperial prison and one of the first things that you see is they're all asked to take their shoes off which is like yeah you're like this seems fine like it's not good but we're kind of used to having people ask you to take your shoes off because of the airport and stuff and you think oh they're going to get put in prison uniforms or whatever but also it immediately gives you that kind of back of the mind concern that like there is a vulnerability to having bare feet. And then the next shot is these guards wearing these like really big cool sneakers, which is kind of jarring because you're like, why aren't they wearing jack boots, you know? And then you have this whole several minute introductory conversation with these evil fascist prison guards welcoming the new prisoners to their prison. And then they reveal that this whole thing is the setup for the floors are electrified. So all the people who are inmates have bare feet and therefore they are constantly controlled and they can be tortured and killed at any moment while the guards are fighting because they've got their sneakers on. And it's like that world building is so tight and so well articulated. The show is so good at giving you really direct exposition in places where it would be organic and then not doing exposition in places where it wouldn't be organic. You know, we see so much stuff explained through visual world building or through the things that Cassian himself is observing and therefore we're observing them through his eyes. And then once we get into the prison at large, it's just this fantastic demonstration of the capitalist prison industrial complex, you know, because they're all being used as slave labor for the empire. They're building stuff which is clearly machine components for some kind of horrible, you know, spaceship or whatever. But we never get to know what it is because they're just building the same fucking thing all day. And also it's completely like a Jeff Bezos dream Amazon warehouse because everyone is divided into individual teams. So 
they can never unionize, essentially. They can never gain enough community spirit to engage in a prison riot. And it's all gamified, so they're competing against each other to win the prize of, like, having flavoured gruel instead of unflavoured gruel. And if you're at the bottom of the food chain, you get zapped by the electrical floors. And it's so well illustrated. And they give Andy Serkis such a good role here because... Andy Serkis as an actor is definitely someone who can be hit or miss. He is a very big performer and he's also one of the more famous faces in the show, even though he's kind of most famous for playing stuff where you can't see his face. But his character is so well drawn because he's the manager of like their whole floor of prison workers. And obviously he's an asshole. He's out there to like enforce the imperial rules. And you you know instinctively that the whole prison is being designed so that people are like enforcing their own imprisonment, you know. And he expresses almost everything through anger because, like, he knows he needs to, like, bully people to do their jobs. He actually has an arc over these two or three episodes where he ends up assisting Cassian by the end of episode nine because Cassian has been chipping away at him, persuading him that there are ways that he can work against the Empire. And then he reaches a breaking point where he realises that he no longer has any personal incentive to do his job. So it's less to do with him making a moral decision or anything to do with like politics and it's more just like oh I've realized previously I had something to gain by working for the empire and now I realize that I need to have solidarity with the rest of the people who are basically in the same class as me and the empire doesn't give a shit about me at all and like the thing that makes him realize that is when an older inmate has a stroke and the doctor basically just like puts him down and is like I'm not treating anyone anymore none of us are getting out of here you're all like permanent prison sentences and then Andy Serkis is like oh fuck (laughs) Well, and he thought he would was like yeah just he thought he was going to get out in a few out. months, and it's like no, everyone is here forever now. Yeah, the prison stuff in this was so terrifying and smart. I was like, I feel like they're going to give ideas to the United States government, but this is another case where like I just think the show is so directly about our experience in the world and like politics at this exact yes. moment. And I mean, all the surveillance stuff too. The panopticon issue is like, they think they're always being surveilled, so it doesn't even matter if they're not. Right. And of course, you know, this is a commentary on the current prison industrial complex and prison labor, but it's also like speaking back to historical colonization, empire and forced labor. And beyond that, just the like dehumanization of people in warehouses, like you said, in Amazon, like it's it's doing a lot of things on different levels, even though the most superficial reading is also totally correct and valid. And I think at the most basic level, the just like unsexiness of it in terms of what we were saying about how it kind of doesn't feel like Star Wars in a lot of ways. Like we have two episodes where these people are just like fucking screwing machine parts together and obviously we see them trying to sort of figure out what's going on and Cassian is trying to figure out some way that they can escape but it does feel more like that kind of 60s 70s era just like nightmare claustrophobic aesthetic yeah I mean my friends who've seen more Blake 7 were like I'm sure that the writers of this are huge fans of Blake 7 I've only seen a couple of episodes so I can't judge but like I'm sure that's true I also saw someone saying that this show overall is a lot more like what's George Lucas's first movie called TH1178 or something yeah I saw a couple like stills that were sort of laid up next to each other I mean honestly that movie is not that good it's working in this sort of same dystopian sphere, but, you know, it's it's a classic reference point. 
And, like, I don't want to, if anyone hasn't seen it and for some reason is still listening to the show, I don't want to make it sound like this is miserable to watch or anything, but it's not performing the same, like, escapist no. functions. I mean, it's, it's a thriller. It's also, like, often very funny. Yes, yeah. In a way that is, like, very character-based and performance-based rather than jokes. You know, it's not like there are really funny characters one of the funniest characters is Cyril Karn, and he's like a horrible little fascist slime ball, you know? The scenes with him and his mother, I swear to God, pure comedy. And then, yeah, the, the scene you were describing where he just shows up at Dedra's office yes, talking to her. I was her. just laughing I was so much. Genu- I, minutes. I, I was mean, I honestly like, was laughing every time when Vel Sartha, the lesbian rebel leader, is like trying to stop Cassian from hitting on her girlfriend. <laughs> Which like also like made me so confused when I saw people who were like very excited when those two were quote unquote revealed to be a couple because I'm like they're clearly a couple like people need to get out of the mindset of characters having to like go up to the camera and be like we're lesbians because it's like yeah like they're clearly lesbians from their first introduction by the time you get to the point where they're preparing for this mission and like each of the characters is finding different ways to distract themselves from their own stress and clearly what Vel Sartha has subconsciously decided she's going to do is get really neurotic about the potential of her girlfriend cheating on her with Cassian which is clearly not going to happen <laughs> but she's like always like moving around to stand in between them to provide a buffer zone and stuff and it's like it's not happening all Cassian did was smile at her <laughs> look he's very handsome so he is well I really love the show's attitude to like romance and sexuality which is distinctly unromantic there's a lot of depressing relationships in this but like there was a lot of amusing headlines about like this is the first star wars spin-off to acknowledge the concept of sex because you know cassian's pal bix has sex with her boyfriend you know off screen but they go to bed together which is scandalous material for the pg-13 universe of star wars but what i find kind of more intriguing is just that it has an adult viewpoint of sex and romantic relationships even though we're not like actually seeing that so there's all these references to the fact that Cassian is like constantly getting laid but not in a way that really makes him look cool it's very different from being like Lando Calrissian you're like this guy is definitely always getting laid and he's like very fun and sexy and flirty and you can see like the way in which he's charming and with Cassian he definitely has charm and he's extremely persuasive and he's also very sympathetic because Diego Luna is this vulnerable handsome guy and he's got that vibe where it's like women definitely understand why he's attractive but men definitely don't understand why he's attractive you know he's the classic type of person who like a woman would sleep with and then be like, I shouldn't have done that. Like he, he's <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's like a wet cat, you know? <laughs> his mother is like, you're sleeping with all these girls. Like, I can't keep track of them and all that. And like, when he goes off for his like brief vacation after getting a bunch of money, he's got this random girlfriend. It's all off screen and it's quite depressing because like, he's clearly not making personal no. connections with any of these people at all. And it's just such an interesting character point. Yeah. This episode is very long. To finish off, do you just want to say a few brief words about... Well, I was going to say Nicholas Patel, the brilliant composer, but I also feel like you should say something briefly about your home country of Scotland before we conclude. Yeah, I definitely want to go to the main filming location for this, which is totally doable for me as someone on the kind of west side of Scotland, the Crookan Dam. <laughs> the big imperial stronghold there is literally just like Scotland. There was such a wonderful showcase of damp, dreek, highland locations in this. It felt extremely real to me because after watching like all of these Star Wars TV shows like The Mandalorian where everything is filmed 
in their sort of three-dimensional soundstage thing called the volume, which is this sort of replacement for green screen, where they project semi-3D backdrops. So it's meant to look like a real backdrop, but it always looks really fake. And the lighting is really hollow because, you know, it physically can't reflect off stuff in a realistic way. And like, you're in a fake environment. They haven't figured out how to make it look good, basically. But this is like old school location shooting. And they have these scenes where they're in these, you know, Scottish Highland glens. And then an imperial spaceship will fly at them. And just the sound and the look of this spaceship, it's like, it's terrifying. It feels extremely real. Because I'm like, I have been there. And obviously it's not a real spaceship. <laughs> but like the sound design is so effective that you're like, fuck, it's it's coming right at me. You know, and it really is the beauty of real location filming. And they're making use of this gargantuan Disney budget that all of these projects presumably have access to. The production design on this is just fantastic. It's by a production designer named Luke Hull, who Tony Gilroy described as 12 years old. <laughs> Uh, he previously worked on Chernobyl, which the producer of this show also worked on, and she kind of facilitated the fact that it is like a primarily location-based shoot. And um, the show has done such a good job of creating these really individual Star Wars environments, which is absolutely crucial to the franchise. You know, part of the reason why, even though The Mandalorian and stuff are really popular with a lot of fans even fans are getting tired of the fact that they keep going back to fucking Tatooine or locations that just look like reused locations. Because like you really need to have interesting production designers and interesting concept artists who are thinking about what certain places would look like if they were real places, you know? So the thing that makes Ferrix feel really unique is that it's all bricks. Like this is the place where Cassian is living at the beginning of the show. So like you've got this industrial environment, but these brick buildings look very different from other locations we've seen elsewhere in the show. And then also, like, you have gorgeous costumes in this by Michael Wilkinson, who is primarily known for Zack Snyder movies. The colour palette is so interesting. Like, there was this fantastic shot in the first episode that's just dozens of workman's gloves in all these jewel tones that are hanging up on a wall. Just seeing that, you know that this show has a real aesthetic sensibility to it. Like, the cinematography is tremendous. The flashbacks to Cassian's childhood are so interesting because, like, they've got this rainforest location and then you've got these yellow shades for all the costumes and stuff. It just is really thought about costume and production design, both in terms of world building and personality and also creating a colour palette that immediately gives a specific mood and personality to each of those locations. Yeah, I also thought, we haven't really talked about the direction because we've been caught up with character and writing, which are kind of easier to talk about, like on a podcast where you have no visual supplements. But I think the direction is (laughs) stupendous across the board. You've written out a few names, Toby Haynes, Susanna White, and Benjamin Karen, who I think all directed multiple episodes. Susanna White did several, I think. It just, like, looks so distinctive. But the thing that really stuck out to me was that the only time there's really, like, a space battle or chase is at the end of episode six. And they actually made it look different and distinctive and exciting, which God knows the last time that's happened in a Star Wars movie or any film set in space. I remember feeling when I watched The Last Jedi that... There are parts of that movie I like and parts I don't like, but I remember thinking the sort of space combat was just kind of like not interesting or a little bit incoherent. Like it didn't really simulate me and the beginning of that movie has a long sequence of that type. Whereas this, I was just like riveted to the screen and given how familiar those images have become to us over the past several decades, I think that's really, really impressive. And obviously that also has to do with like what's happening with the characters at that point and the actors do a really good job. But um, 
yeah, I just think, again, like across the board, everyone is great, including Nicholas Patel, the composer, who I think you should lead us out with a few final words about. Yeah. So he is one of our great screen composers of the current era. He's known for the movies Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins. And he also uh, did the music for Succession, the iconic Succession music. If that were the only thing he ever did, what a resume. But, you know. He is so, so good. And like really great music is extremely important for Star Wars, obviously. The other Star Wars shows, to my recollection, have pretty good music. The Mandalorian... And I think Boba Fett both have theme songs that are by the guy who did the music for Black Panther, who's very talented. But like, largely, they didn't leave much of an impression, partly because as a whole, they're not artistically interesting. But with this, just everything, technically speaking, is like perfect with this show. And Nicholas Patel's got like quite a bold direction for this, as you'd expect, because that's what they're doing with the rest of the show, which is that instead of trying to do a kind of John Williams orchestral score... It's a lot more abstract and it's a lot more sort of techno based and like there's a lot more rock instruments. So there is a full orchestra doing the orchestral parts, but there's also a lot of analog synths, which is kind of fitting in with the late 20th century vibes, I think. And every single episode, the credits music is remixed in a slightly different way, which I'm obsessed with (laughs) because it sets the tone perfectly for the way the mood of each episode is going to happen. So like sometimes it will be really stressful and you know it's going to be a stressful thing or it's like a slow build up. And the other main recurring theme he has is this sort of pulsating rhythm like a heartbeat, which is happening like all the way through the show, which just adds to the stress because it is a thriller and you're spending most of the time being stressed. The other final thing I'd like to say about the music is the guy with the big bell on Ferrix is of course the star (laughs) of the show. (laughs) His name is the Time Grappler, which is hilarious. He is the Star Wars equivalent of the guitar guy from Mad Max Fury Road. This guy has, as far as I recall, no dialogue whatsoever, although he is a minor British character actor who has had speaking roles in many a TV show and movie. He is in Dune as one of the, like, nasty soldiers. But his job is literally to, like, be the alarm clock for the town of Ferrix, where he goes up in his big tower and he hits a big anvil, and depending on the rhythm of the anvil hitting, it sends a particular go home or get up message to the workforce. And later on, we also see that there's sort of like a bell ringing communication system that they use to warn each other for like immigration raids or whatever. So amazing collaborative marriage of different creative elements in that. Yes. So many details in this that have just had so much thought put into them. Tremendously satisfying. Great show. I cannot wait to see the last three episodes. Next week, to sort of continue in this vein, we will be talking about Tony Gilroy's other kind of most major credit, which is the 2007 film Michael Clayton, which we talked about briefly earlier on. I rewatched this during lockdown. I hadn't seen it since it came out. And I was like, oh, this is a masterpiece, (laughs) like a perfect movie. And I think you haven't seen it since 2007 either, right? Yeah, I saw it when it came out, because for some reason as a teenager, I was like, I'm going to go see a political thriller. Who knows? But yeah, no memories of it. I thought it was fine. I also thought it was fine at the time. And then when I rewatched it, I was like, this is not a movie for teenagers. Like, Not that it's inappropriate. It's just that it's so sophisticated and like grown up that I think I just didn't really get it. I think you're really going to like it. I'm really excited to talk about it. And I think it will be interesting to talk about it in the context of this 
show because as I was saying, there are definitely like themes and ideas that continue in both pieces. Famously, Tilda Swinton also won an Academy Award for Michael Clayton for playing a stressed out corporate boss who sweats a lot. She accepted the award wearing a giant velour sack. I'm not sure it was velvet. It looked kind of velour. And I, at the age of 18, did not fully appreciate what was happening culturally. (laughs) And in retrospect, just like what an amazing thing. So we will be talking about all of that. At some point, we may do Black Panther 2, but I don't think Morgan's up to physically yeah, going I, to theaters. I cannot go to the movie theater right now, which, trust me, I'm not happy about it. Still haven't seen Tar. I'm going nuts. But yeah, we definitely will talk about it at some point, but not quite yet. So thanks to everyone for listening, of course. If you would like to support us, you can do that via Patreon. We had a book recommendation bonus episode up there recently um and hopefully some more stuff soon that is at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast and we also have a new instagram account because twitter is dying so (laughs) i was like we really should have done an instagram account some time ago and i just wasn't on instagram so i avoided it But it doesn't look like our Twitter account is going to be long for this world. So if you would like to follow us on a social media platform, you can find us at Instagram at Overinvested Podcast. I will attempt to keep it full of enjoyable slash amusing film stills. We'll see what happens. But um, in the meantime, Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work on the internet? Well, you can find all of my and or articles at The Daily Dot, which I'll just link to a master post of in the uh, show notes. You can still find me on Twitter. Like I'm sticking around on Twitter, but like we are going to diversify. But I'm at hello underscore Taylor on Twitter. Hello Taylor on Tumblr. Hello Taylor on Letterboxd. Yeah, I too am still on Twitter, but God knows if Twitter will even be functional by the time this episode goes up. Yeah, I mean, we're not like, oh, we're planning to quit. We're more both in the realm of we think that Elon Musk is going to destroy this website by the end of the month. (laughs) precisely. So I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. My Instagram, which I awoke from the dead, is Morgan Lee Davies. And I'm currently on leave for my job because I have COVID. But, you know, if if you look around, you can find me. But yeah, the, the podcast isn't going anywhere. So, you know, if you're subscribed, we'll, we'll still be showing up. And in addition to our Instagram, which is, I said, is Overinvested Podcast, the Twitter is still there, question mark, at Overinvested Pod, on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, and then our website where everything is archived, including show notes and links and everything, is overinvestedpodcast.com. Yeah, and if you have any questions about anything, we also have an email at overinvestedpodcast at gmail.com, so you can always contact us there. But uh, yeah, thanks again to everyone for your continued listenership. We really appreciate it, and we will be back soon. Thanks. Bye.